Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star than zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Trenitha, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect program, the sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And today is part three of that series, and the topic we're covering today is Survivors to Family, Friends, and Loved Ones. And I have to say uh, a lot of credit to all of you who've joined the call today. This has been one of our most popular calls in this entire series, and I'm going to tell you more about that in a minute. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the National Cancer Institute, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And it's really because of that collaboration that we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, there are 1,900 participants on the call today. So that's 1,900 of you on the call today. That's a lot of you on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. You come from rural and frontier communities. You come from suburban areas as well as urban areas. So you come from all different regions of the country and different size cities and communities um, throughout this country. And we also have international participants from Canada, England, Venezuela, India, Uganda, Kenya and Syria. So really, you're from all over the world and clearly a group of information seekers. And uh, I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is an outline that our speakers have prepared, and there is lots of information about all the organizations that have come together to make this program possible. And all of those organizations are wonderful resources for you to really utilize. And I do want to call your attention to the wonderful Facing Forward series that has been developed by the National Cancer Institute, which is a wonderful series for you to all get access to and to those materials are just wonderful to have. Now, there also is an evaluation form, and I would ask all of you to please complete that evaluation form. Um, by the end of the today's program. And we have provided you, well, some of you have registered electronically, so please, for that, you just kind of email back to us your evaluations. But for those of you who've registered by mail, we have provided you a postage so that you can uh, fill out the evaluation form and send it back to us. So please do send it back. You know, your feedback is critical to us as we start to plan next year's series. And indeed, this year's series and today's topic was based on your requests. So please tell us what you want, and we're going to try very hard to offer the programs and the topics that you very much would like us to offer. Now, today's program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and the Lance Armstrong Foundation. And I really want to thank them for their enormous support of this program and this entire series now. This is our sixth year offering this series. So really, again, the program is made possible by, by support from the National Cancer Institute and Livestrong Lance Armstrong Foundation. We really want to thank them for their incredible support of this series. Now, I want to introduce to all of you my co-moderator today, Dr. Keith Belize. Uh, Dr. Belize is a health scientist and program director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Belize is also going to say some words of welcome to you as well. Dr. Belize? Well, thank you, Carolyn, and, and welcome to our invited speakers and, and all the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It's truly an honor to be able to co-host the sixth annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series, 
focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. Now, as Carolyn noted, this is the last of the three workshops in our 2008 Cancer Survivorship Series, and the National Cancer Institute, represented by the Office of Cancer Survivorship, the office that I'm affiliated with, the Office of Communications and Education, and NCI's Cancer Information Services, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. Now, as some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors in the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, a number which, according to recent figures, includes over 11 million individuals in the United States alone. Now, one of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and out outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. Now, the survivorship series represents a series for which the number of participants has continued to grow across the years. Over the years, we have had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls, making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we are deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. Now, the topics we have chosen for this year's teleconference series reflects themes that many survivors have told us present challenges for them as they make the transition from treatment to recovery. We also know that cancer is a disease that reverberates throughout the family system and could affect those caring for a loved one with cancer. As you will hear shortly, our, our three outstanding speakers, all experts in caregiving, will address this very important topic. Now, again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Carolyn Mesner, to whom I'll now turn the program over to. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bluzzi, for the excellent um, introduction to everybody and for your wonderful welcome to everyone on this call today. And we now uh, are going to start with our, some of our speakers today. Um, and our first speaker is Suzanne Martz-Dones. Uh, Suzanne is a nurse, a manager at Montefiore Medical Center, and she herself is a caregiver. And Suzanne is going to provide us with a caregiver perspective. It's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Suzanne Martz-Dones. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Good afternoon. My name is Suzanne. I'm a registered nurse and was the caregiver of my husband, Nelson, during his battle with cancer. I'm here today to share my experience as a caregiver in the hope of helping others who are faced with similar situations as mine. I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers of this program for inviting me to speak and also you for your interest in this topic. I'll talk about things that helped me cope with Nelson's diagnosis, treatment, and transition to what I now call my new normal. In 2000, my husband, Nelson, was diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. In fact, he was diagnosed after going to the emergency room of the hospital where I practiced as a nurse. As you can imagine, it was one of the most challenging times of our lives. At the time, it felt like our hopes and dreams were being shattered. Yes, I had the advantage of being a nurse and being familiar with the healthcare system, but even so, no amount of background or experience can prepare you for a cancer diagnosis of someone you love. In fact, I think sometimes being a nurse made it more challenging because I felt so responsible for Nelson's well-being. It was like the entire world was on my shoulders. 
As you might have guessed, I took charge. My husband was able to lean on me for everything. I kept track of his appointments, test results, medications, billing, and keeping everyone updated. Nelson's job was to handle the treatments and do everything in his power to get better. I didn't just feel responsible for Nelson's physical well-being, but also his psychological well-being. When he was in a slump, it was my job to get him out. I was his shoulder to cry on, but when it came time for me to cry, I really tried hard to hide my tears from him. One way I did cope was to educate myself. I made it a point of becoming very well informed about the cancer, his cancer and the treatment process. I felt very strongly that to be an advocate for my husband and in order to get the very best care for him, I had to be knowledgeable. At the same time, I had to be really careful not to get caught up in the statistics, which can be quite depressing and very immobilizing. Educating myself was very helpful, but it didn't tell me how to cope. I did, however, find it helpful to surround myself with people who could help me stay positive and also be able to handle it when I did need to cry. And trust me, that did happen. Um, they were my strength so that I could be strong for Nelson. I also found that there were certain members, uh, family members and friends I couldn't really talk to and even sometimes avoided because they would seem so affected by what I had to say and would often make me cry. And I, even though they meant well, I didn't find that helpful. We realized early on that there were very many people who really wanted to be helpful and be there for us. And as a nurse, I know what a gift it is to be able to help someone. No one likes to feel helpless. So for the first time since I could ever remember in my life, I took the help. I tell you this because when you've learned to be so independent, accepting help is not often easy. Family and friends helped by cleaning our house, cooking meals, giving rides, also financial gifts enabled us to buy things like a laptop that Nelson used while he was in the hospital for his bone marrow transplant. Also, my parents um, financially helped by renting a car so we can get around when we had to stay in Houston for four months during his stem cell transplant. Some people want to help but don't really know how. To those people, I found it helpful to be honest and let them know what would be helpful. Sometimes that meant asking people to make calls and disseminate information. Other times that meant asking people to refrain from asking questions or giving advice. What Nelson and I both found very helpful was to talk to others who had been through what we were going through. It helped us understand what would happen and simply knowing that someone else went through what we were going through and made it through was extremely positive influence on us. One of the challenges that took me quite by surprise on my dad was getting back to what I call normal. All my thoughts and actions had evolved around my husband and his illness. Yes, you celebrate remission, but what comes next after the diagnosis and treatment and recovery? What will your life look like um, when you're no longer focused on the next appointment, the next test, the next result? It can be really confusing. Finding a new normal isn't easy, but it does happen. For me, the turning point was going back for my master's degree. The program I was interested in was very intense and would require a lot of my time and effort. I remember asking myself, well, what if I enroll and the cancer comes back while I'm in school? A mentor gave me great advice. She asked me, what if you miss this opportunity and you don't go back to school? You definitely will regret it and you might even resent your husband for it. I took her advice and I applied. I sat down with my husband and let him know that I now need his support. It wasn't easy, but it made the accomplishment worth that much more to me. My husband is in remission and considered cured from his cancer. I don't wish what we went through on anybody, but what I do want to say is that believe it or not, and I know this sounds crazy, but good things do come out of illness. We have met some of the most amazing people we never would have met otherwise. 
We have learned things about ourselves and each other we never would have known. My experience has even made me a better nurse. Since I have been on the quote-unquote other side, it has really helped me become more empathetic towards my patients and their caregivers. In closing, I'd like to thank all of those who continue to, who, who do and have and continue to support me through this challenging journey. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope that by sharing my experience, it'll help even one person understand that you're not in this alone. At this point, I'll turn it back to Carolyn Mesner. I want to thank you very much, Suzanne, for just a really excellent and just very compelling and um, uh, just a beautiful um, caregiver perspective. I know it resonates for many people on this call, and I know there will be many questions during the Q&A, but I, I just want to thank you for your really telling us about your experience and really uh, trying to help everybody on the call um, with some of the experiences that you had. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Gail Hunt. Gail is President and CEO of the National Alliance for Caregiving. And I've asked Gail to really set the context about really caregiving, and uh, Gail is um, really one of our leading country experts on caregiving. Gail? Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, again, thank you, Suzanne. I thought uh, your uh, discussion of your own experience really fits right into the Survivors 2 uh, title of this uh, um, teleconference call. I think it was uh, was really excellent in sort of setting the stage for the conversation. And of course, at the National Alliance for Caregiving, our focus is the family caregiver, the person who's like Suzanne doing the the caregiving for the person with whatever the illness is. And we do most of the national research or a lot of the national research around family caregivers in terms of looking at uh, at who they are and how many caregivers there are and what kinds of people they're caring for and what, very importantly, what are the impacts on family caregivers. So we really aim to be sort of the go-to place for, for information around family caregiving, and we're a, a coalition of 40-some national groups that have come together around this issue. So we've done a couple of national caregiver surveys specifically to get the demographics uh, overall, and uh, there are 44.4 million people who are doing caregiving for uh, family members and friends who are 18 or older. And really, if you think about it, this is the backbone of the long-term care or chronic illness care system in our country because they're providing this care free uh, for all those people that are not in some kind of a facility. And most people, of course, are not in a facility. They're at home. And the prototype of the family caregiver is a 46-year-old baby boomer woman. Now, she works outside the home as well as spends more than 20 hours a week caring for her elderly mother. And again, that's the prototype, but think of that. This person is working in a full or part-time job and also doing 20 hours a week of work for um, their uh, family member or friends, and in many cases, it's more than one family member. So it may be a husband, and it also may be a mother, or it could be uh, the next door neighbor that they're caring for, as well as one of their own, uh, as one of their own family members. And one of the things we've tried to make a big emphasis on with Congress, and we do quite a few Capitol Hill visits, is the issue of the economic value of caregiving to society. So if you were to take all these caregivers and put a dollar amount, a low conservative dollar amount, 
on the hours that they're spending doing this caregiving. It's uh, calculated at more than $350 billion, with a B, billion dollars a year that they're contributing to society. If we look at some of the impacts of caregiving on work, we see that nearly 60% of caregivers work full or part-time, and 62% of make them 62% of them make some kind of workplace accommodation. Now that could be coming in late or leaving early, or it could be taking a leave of absence, or it could be saying, I'm not going to take that promotion, or um, I'm going to, uh, um, you know, to pass up going back to school so that I can get a higher level uh, position because I'm so involved with the caregiving. And, and we also see that about um, 10 percent, um, it's a combination of 6 percent and 3 percent, uh, say that they're either uh, leaving the workplace early, taking early retirement due to caregiving, or they're just leaving the workplace completely. And so we have those people dropping out. When we did some uh, calculations of what the um, uh, the cost to employers was in terms of lost productivity, when you calculate in issues like I'm going to have to uh, find a replacement for that person or I'm going to have to... Uh, um, somehow uh, adjust, I'm going to have to adjust on a day-to-day basis for their coming in late and leaving early, uh, it comes out to be uh, 17 to $34 billion a year for employers in terms of lost productivity. If you flip that over and you say, well, what about the caregiver? What's the dollar amount that they're losing? Well, over a typical career of caregiving, which would be of several years, it could cost employees up to $659,000 overall total in lost wages, pension, and Social Security. So we see that the employees are really taking a hit as well. Now, the issue of caregiver health as a public health issue has come to be something that the CDC has started to look at. And when we ask caregivers in general, uh, how would you rate the stress that you feel caregiving gives you, that about a third of them rank it as four or five on a scale where five is the highest and very stressful. And then also, if you look at, there's a, a, a general question that the CDC asks nationally of the population as a whole, and they ask about um, the percentage of, uh, you know, they ask people, what do you say your health is? Is it fair? Uh, is it excellent, good, very good, good, fair, or poor? Um, we see that 9% of the population as a whole says that their health is only fair or poor. Of caregivers in general, 17% say that their health is only fair or poor. And of those who are really doing the intense caregiving, that is the personal care, bathing, dressing, feeding, toileting, 35% of them say that their health has gotten, uh, that their uh, health is only fair or poor. And then when we ask the uh, people whose health is only fair or poor, the caregivers, we ask them whether their health has gotten better or stayed the same or gotten worse due to caregiving. 44% say that their health is moderately worse due to caregiving, and another 15% say their health has gotten a lot worse. So the CDC and actually the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are beginning to say 
wow, we need to be concerned about the caregiver's health as well as the care recipient. And what are those major issues that caregivers say they have in this regard? Lack of sleep, stress, and depression. And among people who are, uh, whose health is, say their health is only fair or poor, 90% of them say that they feel they're depressed as a result of, of caregiving. The other major thing that we wanted to look at was out-of-pocket costs. And so just this past year, we've come out with a study called What They Spend and What They Sacrifice. And we did a telephone survey of a 1,000 caregivers, and then we had 41 caregivers out of that group who self-selected become diarists. And so they kept detailed financial data on what they spent on caregiving for 30 days. And we were really surprised, as was the media, uh, about what happened. The estimated annual out-of-pocket expenses that all the caregivers say they spend is $5,531, which is pretty much in anybody's view a lot of money. And it was more than 10% of the median income of the group, which was uh, just about $43,000. So people are really spending an enormous amount out of pocket, uh, especially in, relate, in relation to their income. The diarists, who, as I said, were self-selected, uh, intended to be caring for people who were much frailer. Uh, they had higher costs, over $12,000 a year, that they were spending uh, for the family caregiving. And yet, one of the things that came out of the study was people saying, it's not the money, it's the time. And they had poignant stories about how they had put off weddings, they had put off lots of different uh, important activities to them because they were doing caregiving. I'd just like to mention in closing that there are a couple of websites besides, of course, cancer care, which are really good in dealing with family caregiving. There's a familycaregiving101.org website that's sort of when you just begin to realize you're a caregiver and you need some support with those issues. There's a strength for caring, that's one word, .com, and caregiver.org, which is out of the Family Caregiver Alliance in San Francisco. So thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the caregivers. I want to thank you very much, Gail, for just an excellent presentation, really um, eloquent, actually, in terms of just giving all the details of caregiving and giving everyone a sense of the numbers of people and the costs involved and the really and the impact of caregiving on everyone's lives. And, and indeed, both you and Suzanne's presentations really do both really dovetail so similarly. It's really very helpful, I think, to the audience to hear this kind of resonance from both of you. And our next speaker is Dr. Laurel Northhouse. And uh, Dr. Northhouse is a, is a nurse, and she's Mary Lou Willard French Professor of Nursing, University of Michigan School of Nursing, Co-Director, Socio-Behavior Program, University of Michigan Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Northhouse is really going to talk about research on caregiving and the stress of family, friends, and loved ones, and practical tips for managing stress. So I'm going to now turn the program over to Dr. Northhouse. Thank you, Carolyn. It's very nice to be on this program, and I'd also like to thank Cancer Care for inviting me to be with you today. In my presentation, I would like to address two major points. First, I will briefly discuss what the research says about emotional distress in caregivers, and then I want to give you some tips for how to manage this distress. 
These tips are based on the research that we've been doing for several years with cancer patients and their family caregivers. And I would also like to acknowledge that the Office of Cancer Survivorship at NCI that's helping to sponsor this program has been sponsoring our research to develop these programs for caregivers and their loved ones. So let me start with the emotional distress in caregivers. What do we know from the research? Well, for many years, health professionals focused primarily on the needs of cancer patients and tended to overlook the needs of family caregivers. Patients were often viewed as weak and family caregivers were often viewed as strong. Family members were also thought to be immune to the effects of illness because the cancer was not in their bodies. But we now know from the research that this is not the case. Family caregivers are emotionally, in some cases physically, affected by the patient's cancer. And I think Gail did a very nice job of telling you some of the statistics about how it affects the caregiver's health and well-being. We also know from the research that, um, that caregivers are affected in many ways by the illness. And even though the cancer is not in the caregiver's body, it certainly affects their lives. The effect in caregivers is similar to a stone dropping in a pond. And I'd just like the uh, caregivers out there to visualize for a minute a stone actually dropping in a pond. And then as the stone hits the water, it creates many ripple effects. As you may visualize, the ripples are larger where the stone first hits the water, and they're smaller as you move away from the point of impact. Well, that is just what happens to family caregivers who are dealing with cancer. Family members, especially those who are the primary caregiver for the, the patient or the loved one who is ill, often experience the most emotional distress. You may wonder, well, how much emotional stress do caregivers actually report? And it varies depending on the caregiving situation, as Gail mentioned. And in situations where caregiving responsibilities is high, as you can imagine, in advanced cancer, caregivers report more distress. But I'd like just to tell you um, a little bit about a recent study that was done by a group of researchers. They examined 46 different studies that were conducted with cancer patients and their spouse caregivers. And they were trying to determine just how much distress do spouse caregivers report. And these studies were conducted with uh, patients with various kinds of cancer and at various stages of the illness. And what they found was that there's a reciprocal relationship between the distress of cancer patients and the distress of their spouse caregivers. If one partner was distressed, the other partner was also often distressed. In other words, each partner affected the other partner's well-being. They also found that caregivers report more distress, emotional distress, than the normal population. And again, I think Gail did a very nice job of telling you about those differences. And what they found that in general, caregivers' distress was not sky high, but at a small to moderate level depending on the caregiver situation. And obviously in those situations in which there's more tasks and burden associated with the role, there would be more distress. It may interest some of you to know that from their report, they found that female patients and female caregivers tend to report more distress than male patients and male caregivers, although this is not always the case. And although there's many explanations for this, it just seems that for many female patients and caregivers, they have many other roles in the family life, and then the, this caregiving role piles on top of those pre-existing roles. 
We also know from the research that younger caregivers tend to have more emotional distress than older caregivers. And on the other hand, older caregivers often have more physical problems than younger caregivers, and this uh, can make the caregiving role even more difficult. Let me just summarize for a moment about this emotional distress uh, research, which indicates that it's a very important part of the caregiving role. But the next question I want to address is how can caregivers manage this distress? I'll spend most of my time on this. I would like to give you six tips to help you cope with stress. You may know these tips already, but these are actually tips that are drawn from various research studies, including our own. First, it's important for patients and caregivers to work as a team to manage the illness. This means that patients and caregivers help one another. So even though the patient may be physically ill, it's important for the patient to help the caregiver, um, give the caregiver positive feedback for the good things the caregiver is doing, and for the caregiver, of course, to help the patient. But the idea is they are a team. It's just not one person plus another. It's a team. Working as a team also means using supportive communication with one another. The research is very clear that to try to avoid criticism. Uh, when family members criticize one another or how each other is coping, it adds to the stress of the uh, cancer experience. So where possible, try to set that criticism aside. It's also important for patients and caregivers to recognize that they often cope in different ways. And one way is not necessarily good and one necessarily bad, but rather to accept that they have different styles of coping rather than make that a point of contention. I'm still on this idea of a team, and I also want to say that it's important where possible for patients and caregivers to set aside past hurts or problems so they can direct their energy toward managing the illness and maintaining their quality of life. Now, if there are problems that they're experiencing that pre-existed cancer, then it may be important to go see a counselor and try to work those through so they don't keep putting a negative cloud over their attempts to deal with cancer. Second, it's important to try to maintain hope in spite of the seriousness of the illness. And I think Suzanne did a very important um, uh, point when she talked about how she tried to surround herself with positive people because that's exactly what we encourage patients and family members to do. You try to surround yourself with people who can affirm you and who can support you. And um, as she mentioned, not all family and friends are helpful, so try to pick those who are. It's also important in terms of maintaining hope to set short-term realistic goals that you can accomplish and feel good about. And also as a way to maintain hope, try not to let the cancer consume you. Uh, you know, when we get into that caregiving role, it can be a 24-7 experience and it can be all-consuming. But if at all possible um, for both the, the patient or survivor and the caregiver to try to carve out some time, even if it's not a lot of time, to try to do enjoyable, pleasurable things in their life, um, go someplace, um, go to a, meet other friends out or whatever, and try to have some sense of normalcy even though things are not normal. Uh, I would like just to comment on depression. We know from the research that if either the caregiver or the patient is depressed, um, it makes the whole cancer situation more difficult. It's just like another big boulder on one of the person's back. So if you sense that you might be depressed or you're a family member, it's important to see a health professional try to get screened to see if this is something that perhaps should be treated. 
The third tip I'd like to give you is to use restorative activities to counter mental fatigue. Mental and physical fatigue are different, and caregivers often experience mental fatigue. Let me tell you what some of the symptoms of mental fatigue are, and many of you can, out there can think about whether or not you've had any of these. So the symptoms include trouble remembering things, difficulty concentrating, feeling irritable, having a short temper, those kinds of symptoms. Now, I know myself that I've had those symptoms of mental fatigue, and many caregivers report this because of the demands of the caregiving situation. They're often having to problem solve, organize, and keep moving and have little time to restore themselves. But the research says that it's, uh, there are a number of ways to try to decrease mental fatigue. And the one I want to point out to you today is to, uh, the research says to go out into the natural environment for about a half an hour a couple of times a week. For example, go for a walk outdoors, visit a park, do something outside that gardening, something pleasurable for you. Um, other examples, if you're not able to go outside, are just to sit for a few minutes, stare out the window, look at the birds, um, or look at a, a fire in a fireplace. And while these seem like very simplistic things that might not really help with mental fatigue, uh, the uh, research does say that it allows our brains to rest from this constant problem solving and restore itself. So I would encourage you just to try some of these activities to maintain your well-being as a caregiver. The fourth tip I would like to mention is to try to find meaning and purpose in the illness or your role as a caregiver. Again, Suzanne mentioned um, that she was able to uh, go back to school and find, uh, even though after the experience was over, I think the intense part of the experience. But some families find it that the illness draws them closer together or it helps them to appreciate one another more. Um, others report that they uh, choose to work less and they try to find ways to enjoy life more. Other people decide to volunteer or to participate, for example, many of the people who've been in our research studies, in a sort of an altruistic way to help others. And whatever way might be out there, just try to see if there's a way that you can find uh, some positive meaning and purpose from the experience that you didn't choose to be in, but that you have found yourself in. Fifth, it's important for caregivers to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And again, I think Gail gave you all the facts on how caregiving can be uh, detrimental to the caregiver's health. Uh, but too often, caregivers think only of the patient's health and they neglect their own health. It's important for caregivers to try to eat healthy foods, to get sufficient sleep, even though I know that it's difficult, and if possible, to get some exercise which helps to reduce stress. This may even um, be going out for a walk for 10 or 15 minutes, walk around the block if at all possible, just to get outside and uh, burn off some of the stress that uh, exercise allows you to do. Some caregivers feel guilty when they do something for themselves, but it's really important for caregivers to try to take a break, if at all possible, so that they don't get burned out as caregivers. So in a sense, taking this break is really not a luxury for caregivers. It's essential that they try to take a break, even though it's a small break, take a few minutes to go do some um, knitting or craft or whatever, because this allows the caregiver to um, restore themselves and uh, deal with a caregiving situation. The sixth and last tip I want to give you is that it's important for caregivers and patients to learn to live with uncertainty. 
from our research, we have found that uh, caregivers often report more uncertainty about the patient's illness than do the patients themselves. And what I want to leave with you today is that uncertainty is a normal part of the cancer experience. Try to accept uncertainty rather than fight it or think that it's a sign that you aren't coping well, that you're feeling so uncertain. Also try to get information. As Suzanne mentioned, information helped her cope as a caregiver. And we also find that people, caregivers and patients, who are able to get information, it helps them to um, deal with this uncertainty and cope with the illness more effectively. Well, I'm going to leave it at that point, and I'd be um, happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. I want to thank you very much, Laurel, for an excellent and very comprehensive presentation, really for providing us information about what the research tells and also what experience has been of other um, you know, family members who are survivors to tell us about these experiences so that we can better understand this experience that everyone's having. And now we do have time for questions. Um, we have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Trinita to bring all our speakers on board, so Suzanne Martstones, Gail Hunt, Laurel Northhouse, and Dr. Keith Felizzi. Everyone will be on board here to take questions. And uh, Trinita, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and we'll take each question one at a time. And I want to just say to everybody, if we don't get to your question, because there are a lot of you on the call, please do just call us after the call at Cancer Care. We'll be happy to take your questions at that point. But let's take as many as we can now. Trinita? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question is from Peggy. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, um, I am the cancer patient here, and um, I'm not getting any support from my family at all. It's not that they don't love me. Um, they're hiding their head in the sand. They just can't deal with it. And how can I get them to, because I'm in reoccurrence, so how do I get them to realize this and to help me, because I'm at the breaking point now, because I've been taking care of myself for a year and a half. I can't do it no more. So, Peggy, one thing I do want to do is I want to talk with you after the call so we can be sure to connect you up with some support services in addition to what your family can provide or is not able to provide at this time so you have a linkage to really support services where people can really help you because we do know that people need support and you're entitled to support. And, um, Laurel, do you want to comment also on sometimes families are able to provide support, sometimes they're not able to, and then how we build in other structures to provide support for people? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, Peggy, I think others have experienced what you've experienced as well, so I hope you don't feel too alone with that. I'm, I want to ask you a question, do, um, patient, do, you, do you, does family ever go to appointments with you? And maybe you aren't able to answer on this call because of the way it's set up. But sometimes it's helpful just to invite a family member. Take, pick one of the family members that might be most willing to do this and ask them to accompany you on a visit to your physician or nurse practitioner to learn a little bit more about your illness. And sometimes when they participate in that experience with you, they often get a little better understanding about what you're going through. Now, if they're not able to do that, I think one thing that's helpful is for you to try to be as direct and open but not critical as possible and say to one or two of your family members, you know, I'm feeling kind of alone dealing with this illness. I wonder... Um, uh, I'd just like to have a chance to talk with you a little bit more about how I'm feeling and see if you can set aside a time, maybe go out for coffee, just rather than just uh, always sort of quick catch them when they're on the run, but try to set down a time to see if they're just able to understand a little bit more what it's like for you. 
And if your family is not able to help you, um, I would encourage you to try to find support groups in your area of other people who are dealing with recurrent cancer because it's a very difficult period of time. Um, so they can help provide you the support that maybe your family is not able to help you at this point in time. But first of all, I would try to um, have direct communication with your family in a non-critical um, way to see if you can at least start the dialogue. And Ashley, um, Peggy, I'd be happy to talk with you after the call because I think I think what Laurel said is really important that you're not alone. That many uh, times a person we've talked about how sometimes for this this call is focusing on, of course, on caregivers. But I think what you're also expressing is that sometimes the caregiver can't be there for you and aren't there for you, and then you need support from other people until they're able to come on board if they can. So um, I hope this is helpful to you, and thank you for your question, And but you and I will talk after the call. Thank you. Our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Ronald. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, I missed question five, so could you repeat that again to me? Do you have a question, Ronald, that you wanted to ask one of our speakers? Uh, a, a question for because I missed it in the, the doorbell oh, ring. Oh, okay. oh, was it questions? Was it uh, tip five, perhaps, yeah. Ronald, that I gave? Yeah. Tip five was that it was important for caregivers to maintain a healthy lifestyle, okay. and basically what I said is too often um, they focus only on the patient's health and they neglect their own, and so I was really encouraging caregivers to take care of themselves. Thank you. Excellent question, Ronald. Our next question, please. Thank you. Our next question is from Marsha. Go ahead, please. Yes. On your outline, you mentioned um, practical tips for managing stress, FOCUS. Was that an acronym for something? Yes. I'm sorry. Thank you for bringing that up. FOCUS is the name of our um, intervention program that we offer to patients and their family caregivers. And the acronym FOCUS stands for the five core components of our program. And the F is for family involvement. That's kind of the part I was telling you about, work together as a team. And we encourage, so we try to involve families, encourage them to communicate with one another and support one another. The O is optimism, and as I mentioned about fostering hope and trying to maintain hope. In our program, we encourage families to stay hopeful even if thing, this, the um, illness looks serious. C is for coping. We encourage uh, patients and families to um, engage in active coping rather than passive coping. And active coping is trying to get out, do exercise, to um, try to find information. Passive coping is sort of denying that the situation has happened and I'm not going to think about it or I'm not going to talk about it. That would be more be passive coping. U is uncertainty reduction. In our program, we help uh, caregivers learn to live with uncertainty and we give them some strategies for doing that. And the S part, which I really didn't get into today is symptom management. Um, what are the ways to deal with some of the symptoms that the, um, the patient or the survivor is experiencing? And that's probably really not the focus of our presentation today, but that's what FOCUS stands for, and that's the intervention program we've been offering to people in our community. Well, we have a very observant um, audience today. Thank you for that question, <laughs> yes, and, you. uh, and you're right about the acronym, and, but that's an excellent question, and I'm sure there may be other questions about that as well, so thanks. Our next question? Our next question is from Nancy. Go ahead, please. Um, can you hear me? Yes, Nancy, yes. I'm sorry. Um, yes, I'm the, the um, survivor, and my husband um, frequently, from the very beginning, has expressed a lot of um, anger towards my oncologist. And it, it seems unrealistic in many ways 
um, the things that he gets angry with. And when I was talking to someone else who was a survivor, she mentioned to me that um, her husband as well was was frequently upset with the, with the oncologist, no matter what what they said or did. And a lot of it seems to be posed around not sharing enough information. And I was curious if there was a way for me to help him cope with this. That is an excellent, you know, you raise an excellent question, Nancy. And it, again, that is not uncommon, but indeed a lot of anger is expressed at the treating healthcare team. And um, actually, um, uh, Laurel, would you like to address that? Sure. Um, I agree with Carolyn that this is not at all uncommon. And uh, you found that already, Nancy, that um, somebody else's husband was this way as well. I think uh, the two things. One, to try to understand what might be going on to, um, for your husband to be expressing this anger. And quite often we know that partners feel helpless to deal with the, the, the cancer in their partner. It's uh, frustrating. They can't do much about it. And sometimes this powerlessness that they feel comes out as anger. And probably a safe place to vent that anger is toward the physician just because they're there. And also we know from the research that uh, caregivers, in this case probably your husband, has more uncertainty. If we were to give him a measure, an instrument, um, to assess his uncertainty, he probably has more uncertainty than even you do. Um, and my guess uh, is, is because the uh, caregivers are often less involved in the interviews with the physicians, and so they often don't know if they're getting the straight scoop, if they're getting all the information or if stuff is being kept from them. So you didn't mention, or I, I guess maybe your husband does go with you to the office visits, and if that's possible, um, I would encourage him to do that. You might at the end of the um, visits sit, turn to your husband and say, you know, sometimes you have questions. Do you, is there anything you want to ask? Dr. So-and-so that maybe we haven't covered today, just to help him feel a little bit more included in a part of the situation. Um, in terms of um, not sharing or, or helping your husband cope, um, I think pr probably one of the things is just to be sure you're being direct uh, with your husband, trying to be straightforward about what you think is going on rather than trying to um, uh, hide information. People usually know when information is being hid from them and it makes the situation very uncomfortable. So to try to be as, again, direct as possible and try to include him in the, in the um, conversation and perhaps even tell the physician that, um, you know, perhaps you can, if there's anything special that he would like to share with your husband to help him understand the situation. Ann, do you want to add anything to that? So actually, um, some physicians have more of a bedside manner than others. Some are pure scientists, and you need them because they're very brilliant. Um, sometimes they really need to know what you need. I did run into that situation uh, with my husband's transplant doctor. He was brilliant, but he always didn't meet our needs. And I actually sat down with him and explained to him that he wasn't meeting the needs. And I did tell him what we needed. And from that point forward, I did see an improvement. Very I hard to do helps. very often. That's excellent. That's often very hard to do for people, actually. It is very difficult. Thank you. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Bill. Go ahead, please. Yeah, this is in response to the first lady who talked about no support from the family. Well, when I started my treatment, my family came down one time, and that was it. And I didn't have any support at all but my friends. But I also joined a cancer support group. I also used cancer care. Carol was very instrumental in all of that, and that helped me through 
my coping with my illness by myself. I also go see a therapist every month now, and that has helped. And, and there are people out there, ma'am, that will help you, and especially the cancer care organization. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I, I think what you say is, is very important in the sense that sometimes, um, you know, one needs to get help from people, perhaps outside the family we are talking about. This program is focusing on help from family, friends, and loved ones. But sometimes family, friends, and loved ones, they have their own issues and it's hard for them. And sometimes it is important to reach out for professional help and to get people who can give you support that can maybe then bring you back um, to helping um, your family and, and so that it's a very, um, very, very common to have these issues occur. Uh, Carolyn, if yes. I can add, this is Gail. Um, when we did the National Caregiver Survey, we found that 15% of the people said that they were caring for someone who was not a family member. So they were exactly, as this gentleman says, caring for a friend, caring for a neighbor, or someone else who uh, they could be very involved with their care, but not a blood relative. That percentage again was? Um, 15 15%. So we're hearing that's a lot of people, when you, when you heard all the numbers that Gail had said, that's a lot of people who really are depending on other people for their support. Excellent. Thank you. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from June S. Go ahead, please. Yes, hello. Um, I'd wonder if Gail could repeat the uh, website that she offered at the end of her talk. Yeah, familycaregiving101.org. Strength for caring, that's one word, dot com and caregiver.org. You need to really reach out and find other sources of really support. It can be very, very helpful. Um, and I think, well, I guess, Suzanne, you comment on that as well, just in terms of, of getting additional information. Do you want to comment on some of the things that you did to get that additional information? One of the big things that I felt helpful was the Internet. Of course, you have to be careful about the source of the information. Um, but we did reach out to different organizations, Cancer Care, um, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, any, anybody who seemed to have expertise in the area. And then, again, we reached out to people who went through what we went through, and we found that extremely helpful. That you have to be careful with, because if they had a bad experience, you really don't want to hear that part of it. <laughs> Excellent point. And Dr. Polizzi, do you want to comment on just the kind of the search for information and support? Well, one of the things I would recommend is um, you can call the Cancer Information Services here at the NCI, and that number is 1-800-4, that's the number for cancer, and you could be put in touch with services in your particular community. And I believe the Facing Forward series was also part of um, each participant's packet, and there's a wonderful document that focuses on caregiver issues, so I would also refer you to that document as well. The well, National Cancer Institute really has a huge amount of information, the Cancer Information Service. Um, we also have the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. All of those organizations that you have a lot of information about are wonderful places to start in terms of just searching for, for information. But I have to say that um, these are wonderful resources for all of you to, to look at in terms of just credible resources to go to. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Cecilia. Go ahead, please. Can you hear me? 
Yes. Okay, sorry, I muted myself just now. Um, my husband is suffering from stage 4 cancer, and he hasn't reached out at all to any kind of support. And I have been very proactive in looking for support for myself and for him, but I cannot really... Um, I feel that I'm invading into his privacy by pushing him into any kind of support mode. So what would your suggestions be? I'll just start by saying sometimes um, the person who themselves is realizing that there's a problem, they often are the very sometimes to start themselves to get support, to get linked up like yourself or anybody else on the call, um, to get support first for yourself, and then often through the support and the, and the uh, supportive services that you get, you can try to figure out whether it's reasonable then to get help for the, this other person that you're concerned about. But I would say that initially uh, it's very important for the caregivers often to get some support themselves. I think that's, that's critically important. Laurel, do you want to comment further on that? Well, Carolyn, I think you just gave an excellent point about uh, getting help as a caregiver and then uh, getting some help to figure out how you might proceed with it. So that would have been my number one point as well. I also would just like to say we sometimes see this with men. Uh, some men are a little less open. In this case, it sounds like your husband is quite a bit less open um, about reaching out for help. And um, so that's not all that unusual. Um, I'm just wondering if instead of uh, some men don't like to go to support groups and public areas to get support, and if it might be possible to check with one of the uh, health professionals in the, the, where you where he's getting care to see if they know of another person, sometimes another survivor who's actually doing very well and is kind of a, a peer support person who maybe your husband might be willing to talk to on the phone um, or at a, a, a visit with just the two of them, a little bit less public place to try and get support. Uh, but in the meantime, I think first start with yourself and then um, as you try not to get frustrated, it's again his coping style and maybe he would like to reach out, but it's just hard for him. So um, I would just try to, to move slowly and see either uh, as you get support or at the center where your uh, husband gets his care if there might be a resource for him there. Excellent point. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can be like a push-pull, like you'd like the person to get help, but they're not interested at that time, and sometimes it does just work better if you yourself get that support and then figure out the next steps to take it almost a step at a time. That's helpful. Um, and Celia, I'd be happy to talk with you after the call as well. Our next question. Thank you. Our next question is from Pamela. Go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. Good day. Um, my situation is this. My, my family, they were there for me. You know, my daughters, they were always there. But the youngest one sort of, you know, she blamed me. She, I mean, told me that she blamed me. She started withdrawing. And, um, you know, in the past year or two, my other children, my other daughters, you know, they started, they sort of get together, and I feel like, they, and we were very close, but I'm beginning to feel this separation, like this great divide, and I don't know what to do. Uh, and, you know, I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm being watched like I'm an animal in a cage, and, and, and they're looking at me and, and waiting for my next move or something, you know, and I, it's kind of difficult to explain. You know, but, you know, yesterday I had one of my, I had a, and usually because I do motivational speaking and I'm always, yeah, I started my own organization to start, you know, um, to motivate people in the, in the Caribbean, to, you know, to raise awareness in the Caribbean and stuff. So I stay active. I live with a lot of pain and I think that's one of the problems because I'm always staggering and falling down. Sometimes, some days, you know, I'm in so much pain I can't move, I'm, you know, immobilized. 
and, and, and it's taking a toll on my family, and I don't know what to do. Similar, a couple of things, and then I'll have other speakers address this as well, but we, we certainly um, would want to get you some support for yourself um, because actually, and if you're in a lot of pain, to see if there's anything that can be done with your, with your symptoms. And I, I know Laura will say something more about that, but if you're uncomfortable, that needs to be attended to. And sometimes um, your daughters might be a little worried. Maybe they're expressing the worry in a different sort of way. So I think we should start by offering you support and then um, and also getting support with your pain. And then in that process, be able to figure out um, to, to really get through that divide. I really appreciate your bringing this up because, again, many families are often feel like they're kind of being torn apart by this. And our goal is to see if we can't find a bridge to, to, to help with that. Uh, Laurel, do you want to comment on just the symptom management and the pain? Uh, well, I agree with you. The, I would certainly encourage her to um, get the pain treated because that also clouds a lot of um, our experience. Um, I wonder if there also might be a, a social worker that perhaps your daughters would be willing to talk with you in terms of how it's been for them and just to try to bring you all a little more cohesively together. I also think that sometimes um, adult daughters, their lives are busy and they sometimes just need a time out to take a break and rather than to perceive that as rejection too much just to recognize they just need a time out. I need to try to find my support elsewhere maybe be able to ventilate your own frustration and, and about how you're feeling alone right now and think of strategies with another supportive person about how you can um, draw back with your daughters a little more closely. Also think if there's a way for you and your daughters to do something enjoyable together rather than always having your relationship surrounding the cancer, can you go out together? Can you... Um, I don't mean to belittle, but be, have a girls' night out where you go and do something enjoyable rather than having your relationship always built on uh, the distress of cancer. I want to thank, actually, um, our speakers. Really just, um, just a wonderful group of speakers today on our call, um, and I want to thank all of you. And I also want to thank all of you who have asked such really excellent and really superb questions. Um, I have to say that your questions, I know you asked the questions, certainly to get some help for yourself, but in asking your questions, you end up really providing help to everybody on the call because it allows us to um, elaborate on points that we might not have been able to cover in such depth. So I want to thank all of you who really asked such very excellent and, and very thoughtful questions. Um, I do want to remind all of you this is a one-hour education program, and that planning a program like this, we all recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one-hour program. And with that in mind, I just want to kind of review with you in our closing um, the services that you can access, um, certainly from Cancer Care, um, and of course all the other organizations as well. But I do want to say a word because I've, I, there are a number of issues on the call today. Um, clearly this is a call, um, this was a call that focused on the needs of caregivers, and whether the caregiver asked the question or the person who is a survivor asked the question, the caregivers were very much front and center in terms of their needs. Now, Cancer Care has a staff of 40 master's level trained oncology social workers, and they're all here to provide really supportive services to you. Um, we offer um, practical and financial assistance. We offer counseling, um, which is a, a, a fancy word for saying someone that you can talk to um, about your concerns and issues and problems and try to figure out some solutions to them. Um, we also offer support groups, both on the telephone and online, and many people find these groups very, very helpful. Um, and they're um, available, again, to anybody who wishes to participate. They're free. Um, and we also have lots of materials and publications and things like that that we can send out to you as well. 
Um, but most importantly, our staff are here to really help you with some of the day-to-day -day issues that you confront and some of the issues that you feel emotionally and socially and practically in dealing as a survivor. Now, Cancer Care can be reached by calling 1-800-813-HOPE or by visiting www.cancercare.org. Now, most importantly, as we conclude this program today, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping as a survivor or coping with cancer. We want you to now feel that you're part of a community of support, um, that you have many organizations that you can turn to for support. We are here to help you. And you know, sometimes you, many of you have said, gee, this problem seems a bit insurmountable at the moment. Sometimes as you talk about a problem with someone who is professionally trained, who can help you to talk it through, sometimes you can t eke away bits and pieces of that problem to make it more manageable. And that's our goal. It's really to help you to get on with the things in your life that really give it so much um, flavor and importance and things that really give your life great value. So please do uh, take advantage of these services. They are free. And all of the organizations that partnered with our program today, the National Cancer Institute, the Cancer Information Service, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, they all also have websites and toll-free numbers and staff that are available to provide you with help as well. As we conclude, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you, and be sure to complete your evaluation forms because we can then have your ideas and your suggestions for topics for next year's program. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may disconnect, and have a wonderful day.